First uh, Timothy chapter three is where we're at. And if you're if you don't have notes, um, grab some notes. That might help you follow along. Uh, we also do all of this digitally. If you're into taking notes digitally because you can sort it better, uh, do it that way. Let me ask you a question: What led to two hundred years, you history buffs? What led to two hundred years of the most damaging things being done in the name of Christ? Here's what it was. Ready? Great preaching and sloppy listening. It's called the Crusades. History now looks back on it and calls it the Crusades. Here's what went on. The place was Claremont, France, where Pope Urban II called a council. On the final day of the Council of of Clement, November 27th, 1095, Urban gets up and addresses thousands of people assembled, and it was by all accounts a phenomenal sermon. And in that sermon, he is shouting to the thousands gathered, God wills it. And the crowd in one voice shouts back, it is the will of God. And what he had just laid out is that in Jerusalem, um, Turks, Muslims had taken over holy sites, and that we as Christians from France, were to go and physically take over what was going on there. And as a sign of commitment that this would be the case, thousands on the spot did what Pope Urban said to do and sewed a red cross on their breast, on their shoulder, on their armor. And we know that as the Crusades, we see that red cross. That's what that was all about. Now, let me tell you about the Bereans of Acts 17. They responded completely differently. Paul and Silas are there preaching to the Bereans. And you guys know, what did the Bereans do? Dennis, what did the Bereans do? They searched the scriptures. They took what they heard and they measured its value. They measured the truth claims against the standard of God's word. Church, I'm about to make some truth claims. I'm about to say, God wills this. Doesn't it stand to reason that if Paul and Silas needed their work checked up on the scriptures by the people, that any other preacher ought to also have his truth claims checked in on by the, preach, by, by the people? Yes. I would say that falls in leadership, we're talking about qualifications of leadership, falls in leadership bear most of the burden is on the leadership culture at any given church or organization. But a part of it, especially in the Christian church, where we are called um, to some very specific actions, a part of it lay in the congregation itself. That when there's a fall in leadership, surely there were things visible, things seen, warning signs there that people didn't speak up uh, and have the courage to say that's against Scripture. So that's what we're going to do today. 15 years ago, Neighborhood Bible Church started, and after a short season of time, there were three men put in leadership. Two of them were first-time elders. One was a first-time lead pastor of a church. Now, the question is, was that wise? Was that a wise thing to do? What was the process that put these three men in charge of this church? What kind of freedom And fences does God put around qualified leadership for his household? How is church governance similar or different 
to other uh, organizations in other settings? These are the kinds of questions we're going to look at today. And I'm not going to take the time to go back and lay out the story, but in short, we had a 50-year organization called Valley Church laying hands on and acknowledging the qualities and qualifications of these brand new elders that were raised up in this church. If you missed our birthday party, I'll tell you this, church. One of the things I count as a massive grace of God, and I'm looking at some faces who have been here since day one, one of the giant graces of God at this church is stable leadership. That there has been a, a group of leaders who have stayed committed to telling you to open your Bibles and check the work, uh, a stable group of leaders who, by God's grace, haven't moved away, not that there's any sinful thing in moving away inherently, but they have stayed here and stayed committed. These are hugely important topics that many churches, to their own peril, are ignoring. You want to know why there's high pastoral turnover. You want to know why there's falls in ministries and there's legion, and we are not above them here at NBC, so we stay on guard. In part, it's because people aren't looking to the scriptures for qualities of who's qualified to lead in the church. So that's what we're looking at. This text today, when you look at qualifications for elders, is the preeminent text in all of Scripture that churches and ministry leaders and congregants should look to as a starting point. Other places touch on it. Many other places touch on it, frankly. But this is um, just a hotbed of something you should be looking at. The title this morning is Respect Your Elders. Now, I can read some of your thoughts. Some of your thoughts are this. Why... Should I? Why should I? I think why should I is both a valid, needed question and potentially a sinful, revealing response. Some of you, the moment something is told in you, it's almost like when you can't help but a little bit of throw up comes up. You're like, like a little tiny acid taste comes in your mouth, and you're like, why should I? That's called sin and rebellion and lack of submission. You should repent of that. However, I think not enough people, when someone gets up front and says, respect your elders, ask this question, why should I? Do you see how that could be a really important question? In fact, it is a really important question. Those of you who are brand new, who don't know me, and maybe don't know the character of Chuck, who just, why is Chuck the money guy? Wasn't Judas the money guy? Is Chuck a Judas? I mean, that's what some of you might be thinking, right? Who's the guy talking? Why should we listen to him? There's a negative way to ask that. There's actually a really positive way to ask that. And church, I am calling on you. Don't just demand expositional teaching from your from your pastors. I demand expositional listening from yourselves, that you would listen to the Word of God, that you would do what the Brians do, and check the work. So God wants you to submit to good leaders, and He wants you to use discernment to determine what a good leader is. How do you know what a good leader is? The Bible provides the answer. We have the Bible and the Holy Spirit. 
Those things provide the answer of what we ought to be looking for in a leader. Let me very quickly go back to worldview because of this. I talked last week about six strings of a, car, uh, of a guitar make up a worldview. And just like guitars, people get out of tune with the truth. That A string is the second one down. Man, that one gets out of tune, and we have to go back to Scripture, back to a standard, back to a tuner to say, nope, this is in tune. Not just in tune with itself, because you get one of those strings off and then tune everything else around that string. It will sound in tune to itself and be absolutely out of tune with what's real. So because your worldview shapes you, All the little decisions you make are being made from your worldview. Because your worldview shapes you, consider, church, what shapes your worldview. That's a really important thing to think about. I would submit to you this morning that your leader's worldview, in other words, the person, people, group, ideology that you are following are currently right now leading you to life or to death. Now, we play a little game called follow the leader. It's really, really simple. You pick a leader and you follow them. The way we do it in our family, we like to ride our bikes over at Hacienda, and one person gets to be the leader, and he, he or she is riding all over, and the rest of us have to follow and kind of keep up. It's really fun. Follow the leader is a kid's game that you've all played, no doubt. But what about when the stakes get really, really high? As an adult, you're following leaders, and oftentimes those leaders have life or death physical consequences, but also life and death spiritual consequences, relational consequences. Follow your leader can turn deadly. Those who lead you shape your worldview most. When you're young, it's the adults in your life. That's why moms and dads, isn't this the most weighty thing to understand when your children are young? Their picture of the world comes from you. I mean, if that doesn't draw you down in humility to your knees on a daily basis, I don't know what else will. That's a really, really weighty thing. When you're out of the home a little bit more and maybe moving into teenagers, it might be teachers and coaches and youth leaders and pastors. These are the people who are also influencing in addition to your parents. And then when you're an adult, it might be your boss, your mentor, it might be the lawmakers of the land or your company, it might be law enforcement, it might still be pastors, it might be certain authors or bloggers or podcasters. Someone is speaking into your life. Someone is, is, is drawing you in to listen. So who you follow determines where you'll end up. That makes sense. Think about follow the leader, right? Who you follow determines where you'll end up. Now, there are some in here, the Bible calls you a fool, so I'll just leave it at that. There are some of you who think, I don't follow anyone, I follow my own self. That's actually the most dangerous person on the planet. Technically, it's called a narcissist. It's like someone who's just wrapped up in there. But they end up being uh, people in history we call dictators, uh, and there's a long list of them. And those are people you don't want to follow. Most people lead, think about this, most people lead as they have been led. Without some intentionality, young people, you will tend to be married the way your parents are married. Good, bad, or ugly. Without much intentionality, you will tend to parent 
the way that you were parented. If you're in a company and you raise to the level of management, you will tend to manage the way that you've been managed. Now, I said without some intentionality, because with some intentionality, you're not enslaved to lead as you have been led. But this is what makes leadership so important. As we lead in the home, as we lead in the community, as we lead at school, as we lead in our organizations, we are actually laying out a vision and a model that can be replicated for good or duplicated for bad. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, by the way, if you call yourself a Christian, that's all it is. You're a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And remember that uh, as a disciple, Jesus is our leader, right? As we look to the qualifications of leaders in the church, let me boil it down to you and make it really, really simple. Are they clearly following Jesus? That's what we ought to be looking for. That's what the text is going to say today. And if you want to boil it down, what is a Christian? What is a disciple? What does that mean? Here it is. Ready? A disciple is one who hears and does what Jesus says. Can we all remember that? That's easy, right? What's it mean to be a disciple? It means you hear and do what Jesus says. Jesus said many on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord. In other words, they're going to, they're going to talk a good talk that I'm following you. And what does he say? Depart from me. You have nothing to do with me. It's not enough to hear. It's great that you're here at church on a Sunday. I think that's wildly important. It's not enough to just hear the words. It's just hear and do what Jesus says. If he says, turn around, I'm the leader, then you turn around, you follow the leader. If not, you go, yep, I'm right behind you, but you stay put. You're not a disciple of Jesus. You are following someone else or something else. Uh, we like to regularly talk about what we are doing as a church. And we sort of got away from a yearly series on that, especially in the early church plant days. That was so important. What are we doing here? What are we supposed to be doing here? What does the Bible say we're, we're to be doing here? In January of 2020, think about January of 2020, right before everything sort of blew up and the world changed fundamentally. We did a one-month-long series called A Beautiful Day for the Neighborhood. There was a movie coming out with Tom Hanks all about Fred Rogers. I grew up on, on uh, Fred Rogers. What is, what is the show even called? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That's right. And so we did a whole thing. I even bought a Fred Rogers a sweater that I changed into. That was a fun series. We did that series, and as we talked about the church, I highlighted something that we show very plainly in our membership class every single time we ever teach it, and it's a definition of the local church. And it's a mouthful, and we don't require memorizing this for membership, okay? Some of you are like, sweet, I can maybe become a member then. But this is a really important definition because it's important to understand what we're doing here. I lifted this verbatim off of Vintage Church, a book, and they lifted it, up, lifted it off of the book of Acts almost verbatim, so I don't mind just sharing with you. Here it is. A local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scriptures, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. That's a pretty good definition of a church. We love it here. That packs a lot of biblical truth in there. Let me simplify it even further. A church is a community of missionaries. 
you want to go like really simple, a church is a community of missionaries. I want to show you a key idea around the task at hand. If we are on mission, if we are doing something, and it stands to reason that we need leadership. I've highlighted a part of this definition that our text screams about today. Christians organize under qualified leadership. You already can see how the Christian way is different from the world's way. There's a voluntary submission here. Organize under. And a key word that our text covers today is that word qualified. Again, engage your brain at church. It ought to stand to reason. Well, who's qualified then? Great question. And again, the text is going to answer that. So here's what we know. I'm going to get to the text in one second, but let me set it up this way. What we know is this. Paul, in writing this letter to Timothy, is pretty all business in this letter. He actually introduces himself in a pretty strong, authoritative way, and there's not a lot of greetings near the end. Remember all the customary greetings? Hey, say hi to that person and tell them to keep going in their church and, and bring my books. and all. None of that. Why is it so all business? 1 Timothy 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and our hope, Jesus Christ. And then he jumps right into it. He's all business. Here's why. He had prophetically said in Acts 20, in Acts 20 you see the elders of the church come and they see Paul off. Do you remember that? On the shores of Miletus. And as he departs, he says this. He prophetically says, be on your guard because from among you, there's going to come wolves. False teachers are going to come in and they're going to lead uh, the, the, the church estate. They're, they're going to ravage the church. Well, that came true. This is the church at Ephesus. That's where First Timothy is. That's the setting. That's where Timothy is pastoring. So he's writing to a church in crisis, and he is writing authoritatively. Do this. Don't do that. As one who's under authority. Let me get to a clarifying idea for a moment, because this is a little bit confusing. We'll touch on more of it next week. What we know is this, the Ephesian church already had elders as an office in place. Again, see Acts 20. That took place before what we're looking at now. And what Paul does in his writing and elsewhere, Titus and in 2 Timothy he does this, in the book of Acts he does this, he uses three different words that all talk about the same office. So big idea I want you to lock in is this, three words to describe one office. So at this church, NBC has seven elders. It also has seven pastors. It also has seven overseers. All the same office. That doesn't mean we have a board of 21 different people. It means we have seven men who lead in those capacities. One commentator put it this way. The idea that elder uh, sort of describes the maturity of those who normally hold position, overseer describes the major responsibility, and pastor describes the gift and work necessary to fulfill the position. So let me, with that, and, and by the way, the reason we've sort of landed on elders, that's what you hear most often, is because that's really where Paul lands most often. 
is elder. And that can be a little bit confusing. If you come out of a, a Mormon background, that will sound different. Often you have a 22-year-old come to your door with an elder, elder so-and-so, and it's confusing. If we were to call them uh, overseers, I think in our culture, that sounds like overlord. Like, what does that mean? You know, there's some weird confusing terms. We've just sort of landed on elder pastor as, as the uh, office title. So let me read the text in whole, and then we're going to kind of pick these apart, okay? First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 say this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I want you just to think in your mind for a moment. What does ambition look like in the world, and how does it look different with those who are a Christian? What does or should leadership look like in the world, and how should or does it look in the church? I believe there ought to be some crossover in both of those, but there are some very key distinct differences to leadership in and out of the church. Let's look at these qualifications. If you're taking notes, he kind of talks about them in three different categories. The first thing, young men aspiring to be elders, current elders, ought to just say, I'm out, I tap out. An elder must be above reproach? Doesn't that mean that he has to be perfect? Every elder I've ever talked to, as we've approached them about becoming an elder, they go, well, I can't be an elder. Why? Well, because like the first one, above reproach. Let me say this, in all of these, there's not a wink, wink, well, no one's perfect. And so we sort of brush them aside under the rug. But there's also not a legalistic standard of saying that you be utterly blameless in this or else who could ever do any of that. So at the start of this, overarching all of this, is the need for the power of Jesus in our life to aspire to these things. Above reproach means, quite simply this, no cause for justifiable justifiable criticism. Think about Job in the Old Testament. It says that he was blameless, a man who feared God. Was Job perfect? Say no. No. Job was a sinner, just like you, just like me, just like anyone who's going to come after us and anyone who went before us. But he he was a sinner who was above reproach. In the New Testament, we have pictures like Peter and Paul, and we have um, various women who are listed, frankly, but we know most about those. Obviously, Jesus is our ultimate example in all of this, right? In fact, your first community group question this week is just stare at Jesus. Take your attention and stare at Jesus and think through each of these qualities. He's the embodiment of all of these things. What Paul does is he gives 14 concrete, observable qualities to define above reproach, to kind of flesh out what, is a, what does above, approach, above reproach look like. And I want you to notice something. The chief qualifications 
for leaders in the church are character qualities, not competency qualities. Let me say that again. The chief qualifications for leaders in the church relate to character, not competency. This is where I think many, many churches go wrong. In the name of gifting and competencies of leadership, of proven growth, of all these different things, charisma, they overlook character. And as we look through this list, there's not a whole lot of competencies. We'll kind of highlight what they are. There's mostly character. I've kind of grouped them into three things. You can kind of group these different ways. But you look at an elder's family life, an elder's personal life, and an elder's public life. Okay? That's how we're going to kind of group them. By the way, uh, many prominent Christian leaders have been rightly removed from leadership. Not just in recent days, but in recent years and in ongoing decades. It's a sad picture of the church. I want you to watch for something that almost all Christian leaders, when you go read the headlines and you think about where they land, they tend to center around an unholy temptation trinity of money and sex and power. Money, sex, and power are what bring down Christian leaders. In worldly leadership, those aren't even offensive anymore at all. Those are actually seen as qualities, right? It's bizarre. I mean, think of who's a celebrity. But in Christian circles, the three categories are money, sex, and power. Watch for them. Watch for how these qualifications guard the Christian male leader against those. Okay? We're going to kind of look for that. All right, an elder must have a good family life. Hear me clearly, not a perfect family life. But an elder must be, is what the qualification says. Must be above reproach. Must, and then he goes on to list these things. So, husband of one wife is the first one. The competencies and character required for eldering in the church must be proven at home. It must be proven at home. Uh, in both places where Paul lists this, Paul lists the qualifications for elders. See Titus 1 also. This is placed right after above reproach. Hey, the men who lead your church, they ought to be above reproach. And then the first thing talks about their home, their marriage. First and foremost, the area above, above reproach should be marital and sexual life. So you might ask, well, by the way, the, the, the literal wording of this is he must be the husband of one wife. Another person has said a one-woman man. So you look at this and say, well, does that mean I need to make sure that my elder is not a polygamist? What's a polygamist? It means having more than one wife. Yes! That's a great place to start! If your pastor has more than one wife, there's a huge problem. But it's way beyond that, isn't it? It's way beyond that. Just like we can say, Lord, Lord, with our mouth and sing and dance and light candles and do all kinds of religious stuff and not be married to Jesus. You can have pastors who technically are married to one woman. They are not one woman men. Church, I'm pleading with you. Hold me to that standard. 
hold Chuck to that standard. I have metaphorically tackled family and friends of mine in love like a linebacker getting through the hole to just destroy the quarterback when I have seen people breaking their vows. You know why? Because I'm supposed to love people the way I want to be loved. And if I'm ever seen breaking my vows, even just a little, I give you permission, except for Will. He's a pretty big guy. I give, and Jameson. <laughs> Those are both gentle guys. I love both of you. You both have permission to come tackle me, to safeguard me. So you ought to be looking at wives. Wives, are, are, are wives of our leaders thriving, not just surviving? Are the wives of our leaders involved and happy that their husbands serve in the church? Are they following the lead of the elders at home? Is there any sense of unfaithfulness in marriage? Not just in this season, but over time. This is why someone like John Garza can look at me and hear some hard truth that kind of offends his sensibilities. Because he can look at me and goes, you know what? I'm close enough to Dave. I drive by his house unannounced. I show up at his office unannounced. And I've known him for 15 years. In this area, he's a one-woman man. I don't need to, I, don't, I, I can receive some harder truth from that because I see this qualification come out. My wife and I were both on stage and a mere feet away when our pastor stood in front of our church and announced a seven-year affair, the sin of adultery. It was announced this way. I was sitting right here. My wife was sitting over here. She was a freshman in high school. I was a junior in high school. That deeply imprinted on me. That is the sin of adultery, and he was rightly removed from being the pastor of our church. I bring that up because of this. Many people have used that moment as the reason to chuck all of church and their Christian faith. They've used that moment to say, I will never submit to or trust another Christian leader again. They have used that moment to chuck the rest of the Ten Commandments. See, if he can't follow it, who, what hope is there for the rest of us? I'm here to stand in front of you and say, God can redeem brokenness in your past. Broken leaders, broken systems, that we return back to the perfect design. We don't chuck it all. I said that sex, money, and power were the unholy trinity of temptation for pastors. I would say uh, potentially all three of those played into my pastor. We were the megachurch of the Bay Area. 5,000 people at that time was astronomical. Being on TV was astronomical. A lot of great came from it, namely my wife and I became Christians and grew up in our faith at that church. Number four, or, or, or the second one, he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This sort of, the logic he carries is this, if you are not faithful with a little, that is the small number of people in your home, that little congregation called your family, you won't be faithful. Why on earth would we trust you an entire church? Be faithful in your marriage. Be faithful in your home. If you want to evangelize your own children, why on earth would we put you in charge of evangelizing and discipling a, a, a larger group of people? That's the, sort of the logic. What does the word manage mean? Well, it sort of comes with the idea of lead and care for. That, that the, the families of leaders 
ought to be known as being well cared for. Does that mean financially? Yes. But way more than that, right? Are they spiritually well cared for? Are they emotionally well cared for? What's the emotional climate of the leader's family? The elder must have a reputation for providing well for his family. Um, I believe this. And by the way, uh, men, you're called to be the family pastor. My kids once in a while, Tegan calls me Pastor Dad. Pastor Dad, because she hears Pastor Dave all the time. I love it. There's a small handful of people that get to call me Pastor Dad. Dads, do you lead with grace and with gravity? I think both of those ought to be there. Lead graciously, lead gravely. What does that mean? Well, a man who keeps his children submissive as a bully and a tyrant is no man for God's household. Would you agree to that? Say yes. That's a horrible way to lead. You can lead as a bully and a tyrant until they reach a certain size and a certain age. First day on the job at a new pastor at one time, I had a family in crisis call me and say, my 18-year-old has just run off in a bizarre relationship, and they are, diso- they are legally disowning us as, as family. Quiet, submissive, homeschool girl. Blew everyone's mind. By the time I dug into this, this bared out to be true. But what it was, was there's a whole bunch of external submission going on, sort of by tyrant and bullying. And then the moment that person had leash, they were gone. So, lead with grace, lead with gravity. Uh, Don't be like the man Eli in the Old Testament. What did Eli's sons do? Everything. They got away with everything. There was no gravity to his parenting. What happens to churches when you have pastors and leaders and shepherds and elders, all one office, that won't have hard conversations? They speak in love, but they don't speak truth. What happens is a nightmare. You don't want leaders in the church who won't do that. Lead with grace. Lead with gravity. Jesus said a plain truth. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. There are many people who meet me and say, ha, I could never be a family man. Here's a part of what they're talking about. I could never do this. I could never die daily and pick up my cross daily. Young men, you want to know what it means to be a family man? Listen up. It means you take up your cross daily and serve your family. Let me tell you some things I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy constantly cleaning up. I don't enjoy... Clearing disputes between fighting kids. I don't enjoy waking up in the middle of the night. I don't enjoy giving up my personal preference over and over and over to serve other people. But you know what? I don't resent any of those things. Love demands that I do those things. The very point God grows me up as his son is in these kinds of daily decisions. And I've got one, two, three, four, five. I have six witnesses that will proclaim loudly, I do not do it perfectly. And the front row said, amen, right? I don't do this perfectly at all, a long shot. But love demands that I do this. These daily deaths remind me of my deep need for a savior. These daily deaths, these daily quarrels that go on. Remind me, my family needs a savior, a covering. 
the grace of God in our home. If you want to write something down, maybe write this down. An elder's home life is meant to be a model and fountain for his church life. I don't have a screen for that, but I'll say it again. Let it lodge in. An elder's home life is meant to be a model and a fountain for his church life. Many, many pastors get it wrong because they give and give and give. And everyone at the church thinks they're so great, so giving, so available, so wise, so patient. And the kids in the front row are like, I wish we had just a taste of that. Dad always breaks our appointments in favor of the church. Again, I joke around about this, but if Becky is constantly going, loudly in the front row, there's probably a problem. For some reason in our community group, we never sit together and we sort of joke that pastors' families are like a fishbowl and people always look for something. We're like, we're doing okay. We just, we happen to not sit again next to each other. It's okay. We sit next to each other a lot. All right, let me move on. Got a lot to cover. All right, an elder must have a good personal life. Let me rattle through some things quickly. Sober-minded. How about this? That means he's not drunk on the mindless dribble of the age. There's a lot of dumb stuff to be drunk on mentally. It means that he's balanced in his judgment and temperament. Elders face many serious, intense situations that require stable, clear-headed men. And if one is not sober-minded but given to all kinds of different things, the church gets whiplash and isn't led well. I'll say this, I have grown in Christ because I'll tell you right now, I'm a lot less funny of a preacher than I used to be. Here's part of why. I think I'm more sober-minded and I'm getting more gray hair by the day. Thanks, kids. And because of that, my own sense of urgency and gravity about what's important and what's frivolous is growing over time. I don't think it means I was a wicked preacher earlier. I just spent more time being funny and trying to draw people in, and, and I think that's a, a, a growth in me of, of sobriety. Uh, here's another one, self-controlled. Um, not only in obvious ways, of course, you should, be, you should see control with the body and its vices, but how about the tongue? Are the leaders self-controlled in their tongue, or maybe their thumbs, right? Now it's like thumbs, what you text, what you t- tweet. How about self-controlled in your mind? Leaders ought to be able to keep objective in the face of problems and volatile people. I used to have um, professors who, Glenn would, would say this, Glenn Miller, he'd say, way to get an A on this test. He'd say, discipline in visible areas gives indication that there are, there's discipline going on in, in, in invisible areas. Those tend to sort of tie in. So when you see a lack of self-control or self-control, you got to look at it. How about not drunkard or addicted to wine? Pretty straightforward in some ways. Don't be that guy, right? A huge indicator that you're not self-controlled, that you're not sober-minded or sober in any other way, is that you're a drunkard, that that has control of your life. But the bigger indicator is how much is alcohol or sub, sub, some substance needed? I've met many people who say, you know, I just noticed I began to need my glass of wine at night to sort of, sort of end my day. And so a, a self-imposed, a, a voluntary, like, this isn't a sin to drink a glass of wine, but for me, it's become a little bit of an idol. I'm going to step back and not do that anymore. Man, that's a really godly good approach to that. 
For a season of time, it got really cool to drink as a pastor and flaunt the freedom you had to, to, to do this. And then sort of equally paired with that was, was cussing and swearing. And me and Becky just sort of didn't get either one of these. We thought, how is it? And again, um, some prominent younger leaders came up. And again, it was sort of a reaction to the, maybe the, the hyper-law-mindedness of their, of their ancestors. But they would flaunt drinking and flaunt swearing. And I thought, boy, neither one of those are becoming to a Christian, much less a Christian leader and pastor. How about not violent but gentle? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, right? Again, this is something that you can just put your finger on and go, wow, I've had a hard conversation. But like Paul said, man, he was like a mother to me. He was really gentle with me in the instruction. Gentleness and not violence should characterize the elder. Not quarrelsome kind of flows out of this previous one. Paul connects this teaching to 2 Timothy 2, where he talks about correcting with gentleness. You know, sometimes people love to bring argumentative friends to church. When I was a college pastor, people would always like be like, you got to talk to this guy. And that guy came with all of his philosophy 101 arguments against the existence of God. And I'd have to sit there and go, huh, I remember very clearly being a freshman in college and thinking I knew a ton and realizing now that I'm older, I know less. I can actually dismantle this guy's arguments very, very quickly. And I'd pray for discernment. God, would you help me be gentle and loving with this person? Do I sit here and just like shoot down every one of his arguments? Because I can. They're actually pretty flimsy. I think with a few questions, I could like judo him and like get him in a headlock. So it would just be this constant thing. Lord, you help me. How do I serve this person the best? That's an example of what that might look like. How about not a lover of money? Uh, I always say this, because if you're doing it right, you shouldn't be a really wealthy on financial levels pastor, right? Unless you're on TV uh, begging people's, for people's money all the time. I'm a single income household um, and so if I ever get a personal helicopter and a helipad in the backyard in our church, you just saw our finances, you ought to question something. Raise your hand and go, what's happening? Why does Dave have the, the pastor's helicopter? That's weird. That is weird. Not a lover of money. Elsewhere, it says that elders are to shepherd the flock eagerly and not for shameful gain. Jesus talked about not serving God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other. Serve one and not serve the other. Again, some of this you just sniff out long before it ever sort of comes out in facts. There's a tone and temperament to, to people. Let me keep going. Elders must have a good public life. Elders should have a good family life, a good personal life, and a good public life. They should be respectable. By the way, it's a little bit provocative to say respect your elders. Why? Because I flipped it on you, right? Saying you, you ought to say, well, why should I? The text actually is saying this, elders live respectably. That's the real title. That's the message of this. Elders must be respectable. Live respectable. Dads, I want to teach you something. Dads are future dads. If you want to know how to instill an intolerance for disrespectful behavior to your daughters, then day in and day out, over the days and weeks and years, Treat them as the cherished, loved daughters of God that they are. What will happen is this. 
I pray that when my daughters go on a date and they sniff out the guy not treating them the way dad has treated them their whole life, they will immediately have an intolerance for that. Men behave badly mostly because we're just sinners. That's it. Rebellious of God. But in part, because women that they're with don't call them on it. My wife calls me on things, and guess who hates it? This guy. Guess who, like, 20 minutes later loves it? This guy. So leadership provides this sort of pathway that when you move away and sniff out something different, it feels different. We have had the ex-NBC people call back and say, hey, this feels really off. Is this off? I'm like, heck yeah, that's off. Let me give you nine verses off the top of my head of how that is off. I thought it seemed weird. I couldn't imagine you or Chuck or Jim doing that. Good. That's the picture. Their public life. All right, let me move on to hospitable. Xenophobia. We all know this weird term now, right? Like we've been sort of indoctrinated with with this. And that's like slung around. You're a xenophobe. Comes from a Greek word meaning strange, foreign, or alien. Who's called to love the stranger, the foreign, and the alien? Christians. (laughs) Hospitality is the opposite of xenophobia. We ought to be the least, like you can't accuse Christians of xenophobia. If you have any sense about you whatsoever. Why? Because we're hospitable. I love this about our church. Many of you have described your first day here. I can't even describe it. I was just welcomed in way more than I deserved from day one. That's the picture of hospitable. I love that. Able to teach. A major part of managing well, leading well, protecting, providing is centered around sound doctrine. It's centered around a truth message that we have. What this does not mean is that all pastors, elders must be eloquent orators who can hold a crowd in rapt attention for an hour. That's not the gifting. That's not the qualification Able to teach and manage your household, by the way, are the two competency qualifications. Everything else I see is character. Able to teach does mean this, with Bible in hand, that Gria can contradict lies that are being infused into your brain. They can sniff out and spot false doctrine and teach sound doctrine. I'll cover two more quickly and then we'll... Uh, close out with some music. Not a recent convert. Again, many churches, <laughs> many churches suffer from what happens in Hamilton. What's with Hamilton? Hamilton does this thing. By the way, Hamilton's this big musical. You may have heard of it going on right now. He's also a guy that lived a long time ago. But he does this whole thing, and they're like, let's get this guy in front of a crowd. This guy's amazing. Here's what happens in the Christian church all the time. Someone comes with fire and passion. They just so happen to have crazy gifting to be able to sling words together. And they're like, you need to be the leader. And then crash and burn, crash and burn, crash and burn. Why? Because they haven't paid attention to this verse. A leader in the church must not be a recent convert. You know why? Leaders are constantly tempted with pride. Constantly. Young leaders don't even know that there is an enemy or what his tactics are in any way, shape, or form. So they can't even sniff them out. They don't know the idols of their own heart. So don't be a recent convert. Lastly, is well thought of by outsiders. 
Uh, this was just a regular concern. I kind of joked with Matt. I said, you know, if, if we were to redo things, by the way, Matt's our most recent hire. Matt can attest to this. These are the things we grilled Matt about. This is the stories we wanted to hear about Matt. I, I joked with Matt after, after the elder meeting this last week. I said, you know, the one thing we missed, maybe in future hires, we should go to your neighbors, Matt, and say, hey, what do you think of this guy? We got to go to your softball league and just hang out with you. And if all your buddies are like, hey, how come you're not drinking and being that party guy you normally are, Matt? What's up? And I'm just sitting there with a baseball cap looking all casual. I'll be like, oh, that's who Matt is. <laughs> Must have a good reputation with outsiders. Okay, band, get on up here. Let me say this really quickly. Here's how this p- plays out at NBC. We have male leadership at this church. Elders at this church are men. Why? It's following the flow of the letter. Last week in chapter 2, there's a prohibition of women teaching and exercise authority over men. And then very next verses, there's no chapter headings when Paul wrote this. It lays out the qualifications of an elder which command them to teach and exercise authority in the church. When you preach sections of the Bible apart from the broader context, you miss the obvious flow. Every single qualification in this passage is used in the masculine gender, which supports male eldership, and husband of one wife could very easily have read male of one, or mate of one spouse, but it doesn't. So we have men elders. Secondly, we have shared leadership. It's a team sport if you want to be an elder at a church. We believe this is overwhelmingly the biblical picture. There is no Moses who went and received the word of God and came down, and I say, thus saith the Lord, and I make unilateral decisions. Nonsense. You ought to rightfully ask who pastors one of our pastors who talks a lot from the front. It's Jim, and it's Gria, and it's Chuck, and it's Andres, and it's Matt. We have a team approach here. Finally, what are the action items for you? Let me say this. Give honor to whom honor is due. I talked early on. Stare at the chief shepherd. Do you know who the senior pastor of every church is? It's Jesus. Who's the chief overseer? Same guy. Who's the chief elder and pastor? It's Jesus. Give honor to whom honor is due. Part of that honor is to recognize part of how Jesus cares for his church is he raises up humble, sometimes fumbling, bumbling men to serve as under shepherds in the church and serve the church family. Secondly, pray. I would plead with you, church, use this list of qualifications as a prayer list for your church leaders. If you're in a community group, pray for your community group leader. Pray for your elders. Finally, I'd say this, aspire. Use this list, Christian, to aspire to. This is where my heading is as a Christian. This is where I give priority to. I did yard work yesterday. I enjoy yard work, actually. I'm one of those weird people that do but I do not have the most perfect lawn. I give, that's an understatement. My wife did scoff at that. I will give, I will give priority every time. I'll give priority over tossing a football on a, on a lousy lawn than tend perfectly to the lawn in neglect of some of these other things. Doesn't mean I can get away with no housework. That's not what I'm saying. But it's about priorities. So Christian, aspire to live this way. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, just even as we sing right now and respond in worship and sit with this, um, God, that we would uh, hear from you uh, and receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen.